Hi, welcome to Five Days with Doug. I'm Doug Perkins. I'm really excited today to be bringing you a conversation I had, I guess, two weeks ago now with my friend John Kennedy when I was out in California. John is a wonderful conductor and composer, percussionist, presenter, citizen, mensch. Uh, He's a great guy who does a number of great, great things, and I admire him a lot. He and I talked out in California when I was there, uh, literally got off the plane and ran ran to sit down with him, which was super fun because he was in between uh, traipsing the earth, working, uh, listening to people for this summer Spoleto Festival. Uh, so it was, it was great that we found an hour when we were both together and made this, made this time. We talk about um, his coming up and how he has navigated all the many things in his career that he's done. Uh, it was really fun. He talks about John Cage a lot. Uh, you know, one of the things I really love about my career and being a percussionist and doing all the things I do is getting to work with many of the composers I admire, but I was, I was too young to ever meet Cage. Uh, but John, John got to see him when he was even in high school and, um, John was a big supporter of his in his early days in in New York. So it's fun. It's fun to get his perspective on that. I'm always a sucker for those stories. And uh, then we talk about uh, Joanna Beyer or Johanna Beyer, as he refers to her in the interview, uh, and how he discovered her percussion music and the impact it's had on, on him and many percussionists and myself included. That's most recently he and I uh, made a record along with Todd and uh, Todd's students of, of that percussion music, which is unbelievable. Uh, so you should go check that out. And um, yeah, then we have, you know, a ranging conversation about many things. It's right after the election. So that comes up again. Anyhow, so we talk about a great many things and it's lovely. Here is John Kennedy. Enjoy it. say something really stupid, do you edit it? Or um, probably not. Start. If it's okay. stupid, I don't edit it. Okay. If it's, Good. If it's harmful, I'll maybe edit it, but okay. it's very casual. Yeah. It has a Perkins-esque casualness about it. Fantastic. Yeah, so we're here in Berkeley, California. I just landed. Uh, you, John Kennedy, live in Berkeley. I do. But we met when you lived in... Santa Fe, New Mexico. Santa Fe, New Mexico. That's right. Yeah. And long before that, I knew I knew about you mm-hmm. through your work in New York mm-hmm. with the Central Music Essential. and other such things. Yeah. How long have you been here? Been here for uh, four years now. Yeah. So you know, my professional trajectory—fifteen years in New York. You know, my adult trajectory: fifteen years in New York, twelve years in New Mexico, I guess, and now four years here in the Bay Area. Yeah. And then before that, Minnesota. Minnesota. And then doing my education at Oberlin and Northwestern. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I had two years in Chicago. When were you, when did you go to Northwestern? It was just the early 80s, yeah. A little different now. A little different, yeah. 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 I mean that the the new building there is beautiful, obviously, you know, and but that location on the lake is always where the work was, you know. The Regenstein Hall's still there; that's where the practice rooms were, and uh, so. Well, in downtown Evanston, is and then different. yeah, exactly, because there's nothing to do up there. I imagine in the early '80s. That's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. And when you were there, were you what were you doing there? Well, I was getting a master's degree in performance in percussion. So you were percussioning still? I was percussioning still, but I was taking courses in uh, electronic music and composition. Because, yeah, yeah, you're one of those wonderfully messy people. I am messy, yeah. I mean, I and deliberately so, frankly, yeah. Do you know Brad Lubman? Yeah, we've met, but we, you know, we're not close. But I mean, yeah, we've overlapped. We've over- well, it's and, just so funny that your stories yeah. are so similar in well, that you know, regard. Yeah, and like you know, what's funny was, in fact, Brad, um, when he was like an emerging conductor, um, we had this project with Essential Music. This would have been like late '80s in New oh. York, and with Jerome Kitsky, mm-hmm. the, you know, the Pahasapa Giveback composer. And Jerome had this theater piece, and you know, I had already, like, I mean, I was one of the drummers and we needed a conductor for it. And so we had Brad conduct it. It was like, that was one of his first new music things, <laughs> so to speak, in New York, you know, like uh-huh. with essential music. But um, I have not had the pleasure of collaborating in more recent years. Yeah. Right. Although, yeah, yeah. I guess you probably held on to your percussioning longer than he did. Mm, sort of, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I sort of held on to it through my New York years. Um, into the late 90s. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I think we're always percussionists. You know, if if you want to talk about it. And I'll t- you want me to tell you my reasoning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you haven't even asked a question, really. But, like, so when I was in high school, I grew up in Minneapolis, fabulous environment, um, and my parents were school teachers and arts advocates so that I got to see everything, right? And I saw an event at the Walker Arts Center with John Cage. This is amazing, you know? And so I I got a copy of Silence and read Silence. I was 15 or 16. Completely changed my life. And, you know, it was fantastic for me at that age because I saw Cage's connection to percussion, right? Mm -hmm. And how he had organized percussion concerts as a young composer. And he used percussion as a tool, you know, to uh, realize musical experimentation. And so, while I was interested in conducting and composing in percussion, I realized that they could be integrated because someone like John Cage had done all of those things too. And and I also, like in high school, I was like, well, do I want to go to a liberal arts college and and, you know, study philosophy or poetry or something? And, or do I want to be a musician and go to a conservatory? And through Cage, I thought, I can do all of the above. The answer is yes. You know, I can study percussion and composition. They're, they're connected. And I can, I, can, uh, I can also write and read poetry, too. And, be, you know, and I mean, it was, it was very, Cage was very inspiring that way you know and and that that's that sort of expansive definition of what it means to be a percussionist yeah and so when you were 
seeing Cage, were you were you a percussionist then, or were you a drummer? Or oh, I was. A... Yeah, I mean, my instrument always growing up was a, as a percussionist. Yeah, okay. exactly. And um, and yet I was dabbling in conducting. So the you know, percu- in high school, the, the, and, you were and, already starting. Then. Yeah, I was already starting. I, I was, did a, did a course, a summer course in it, and I was doing composition too, taking some composition lessons. So I was doing it all, but I didn't know where it was going to lead, and. And um, and then you know, like I think, like a lot of people, you get to conservatory. I went to Oberlin, and I realized it's probably good for that. It was great for that, but I also realized that if I was going to survive as a player, I had to focus on that. Right. You know. You know the 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 other stuff you can study in the background, but if you want to compete or whatever, you know, you got to practice. Yeah, yeah I, I had a. For me, that was well. I I'm I always think of myself as a drummer, who has made. Uh huh. I always say I made bad life choices to end up as a percussionist, because you know, like I was like a ro- I was a rocker. Yeah. Playing drums and bass. So and, this other stuff was exotic to you. Yeah. Although I was always doing it, I was. But it was really like in eighth grade, there was like a fine arts program at our school, mm-hmm. and the guy who his family ran the big music school and or not music school, the music store in Pittsburgh. Um, mm-hmm. He was the timpanist of the ballet and the opera in Pittsburgh. Oh. And he just literally one day walked in. It was like one of these days was like a snow day. So not many people were there. And he came in. And it was just he and I. And at the end of the day, he just pointed at me and said, you're my student now. Fantastic. And I was like, oh. Fantastic. Like I remember like call, like going, coming home and being like, here's this guy's number. He said I study with him now. Uh-huh. And then just kind of went off into like the serious percussion world. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was. I mean, well, he identified you. He saw that he could give something, and yeah, yeah great yeah. and h- hilarious. It's good. It's good that I'm so moldable. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like so impressionable. Like, yes, sir. Okay, I will come over next week to your basement. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he kind of got me down the classical road. Mm-hmm. So, but when I got to college, well, my my um, just to swap, yes, mm-hmm. ands to your cage story. Mine was new band. Right. New band came to Pittsburgh when I was 15. Mm-hmm. And um, just as on a lark, I went on what might have been my first date with my high school girlfriend. Mm-hmm. I saw the picture of all the instruments. Hey, let's go paper. hear microtonal music together. I was just like, this is a cool picture <laughs> and let's go. Uh-huh. And this was my, it was my first experience. One, seeing those instruments, which was like, what the heck is this? Right. And then also my first experience with like a new music concert. Mm hmm. Of like, okay, the hall's half full. You have purple hair. You've clearly been coming to these concerts for 30 years. Sure. You're going to walk out in three, two, one. There goes that couple who's now scared. Right. It was great. Like, I, it imprinted so many things on me, mm-hmm. seeing new band. But then when I got to college at Cincinnati, the, I remember the, the jazz drummers. It wasn't like a unified program. So you were either a jazzer or a classical person. Right. And I remember the jazz guys playing drum set as many hours a day as I was working on my role. Mm-hmm. And I had the like, oh, oh, yeah. you are, you are going to become virtuosi of the drum set uh-huh. and I will remain very tasty. That's great. <laughs> That's great. I will become a groove guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you still bring that to your classical playing. Yeah, yeah. I bring, I yeah. bring lots of grooves and, mm-hmm. and, I, and the older I get, the more I play drum set. Great. Yeah. It's coming back. Uh-huh. I was never very good at sets, so it wasn't 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 a focus. 
Yes. Well, you, if you're ever in Boston, you could come to the Berkeley Labs. That's right. And I could, could take drum lab course. <laughs> you could take drum lab with me. Okay. <laughs> and the marimbas. You'll be the best one. Get those feet going. Uh. Um, and, well, the thing that's nice about it sounds like what you did, even though Oberlin made you want to focus. So then in Oberlin, then I guess... Did you take composition lessons, or were you just with MR? I just and... no, I was with MR, and then I did some composition on the side. I think I did one semester, maybe. Um, you know, it was easy when I was in school in that era to maintain a renegade posture. That is, you know, I, I feel think, like to go to Oberlin, you have to have a renegade posture, right? Well, you know, I I think you know today with the way I see young people in the music world and the, like the ones I work with through Spoleto too, there's so much pressure for careerism and succeeding in relation to getting out there, mm-hmm. and and I think at least I I sense a little bit when I'm in music schools that there's uh, maybe some less risk taking, if you will. Um, and and what we had back then, it, I wouldn't even necessarily categorize it as risk taking. It's just that the um, academic environment was less regimented, you know, in in at a place like Oberlin. And when I went to school, it was very unregimented. You could almost create your own pathway, and so you know, a little bit of electronic music, little composition, you know, and and still then do your major in percussion. Yeah, and it was perfect for me in that sense because I was able to, you know carry my 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 radical flag of i'm not studying traditional harmony <laughs> you know <laughs> that's that's so passe <laughs> and you know in a way i wish i had done more of studying traditional harmony you know yeah i feel like every yeah. day the older i get the more i talk about counterpoint yep and the yeah. more i think about harmony exactly yeah so it's like as I mature, I'm maturing into a harmony person. Mm-hmm. But you realize its value. Of course you do. And yeah. its function. Well, and you especially yeah. with yeah. your conducting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been interesting speaking about the careerist thing. For me, so nice early in my career to meet people like you and like Larry Polanski. Mm-hmm. Who, yeah. when uh, I was more a fine-tuned talking about the careerism thing like must you know i feel like i came out of school laser focused with Mm -hmm. must accomplish these goals these are my focused things you know Mm -hmm. there was a big list of to do's and then um meeting meeting you know some of i think i can call you an elder i am an elder yeah i'm older than you yeah (laughs) um uh to, to to realize that perhaps it's a you know, changing the, the the C word of careerist to curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that maybe a life of curiosity and citizenship yes. is, uh, is more important. Absolutely. Yeah. And then one more concert. Mm-hmm. And collaboration. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I've always been, that's always been good. I can remember like when I first started teaching at Dartmouth mm-hmm. as, a, as a young man. Mm-hmm. And having, you know, Larry, of course, is a friend of ours who, who was my boss at Dartmouth. I sure. I think he was the chair who who hired me. At least mm-hmm. in, as I tell the story, he hired me. Um, but, go, you know, and he, if anyone knows Larry, knows that if you were to visit New Hampshire, it would mean to stay at Larry's house and to eat his food and to spend right. time and to get free scores from his garage. 
unbelievable um, the generosity there and the energy and the enthusiasm for so much of the music world you know i mean when i first met larry i was blown away i was just like i, I remember actually he contacted um my partner with essential music chuck wood who i founded and and led essential music with and larry somehow reached out to us because he saw something that we were doing and and Chuck was like, you know, this Dartmouth professor, you know, has invited us to come up and meet and talk and stuff. And I'm like thinking, oh, yeah, some Dartmouth professor. <laughs> and little did I know that I was going to come and meet this amazing, you know, generous, just so much fun. And, right. And, and, and then halfway through dinner like Kramer and Seinfeld, Christian Wolf like enters. Exactly. Down the street. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Like, oh, that happens? Well, we're going to go over to Christian's and like look at the sheep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what, so then you went to Northwestern mm-hmm. and what, what took you to New York? Well, so I went to Northwestern and I finished up my master's performance degree. I had a great time in Chicago. Um, played with the civic orchestra there, you know, the training orchestra of the the. And I, I was freelancing a lot in Chicago, you know, and successfully. I was playing extra with some major orchestras, you know, and um, back in Minnesota where I grew up, to Minnesota Orchestra, St. Paul Chamber, and I was just like, you so know, you're doing it. I was doing it. But I was like, I don't want to do this with my life. You know, Uh I'm not I'm not interested in taking an audition to go play in a regional orchestra for the rest of my life. I've got to do more. And so year after I finished my master's degree, I moved to New York um, to uh, just see what would happen, you know, throw myself out there. And, And in a way, I. I deliberately thought that my advanced degree is not going to be an official degree. I'm going to stay out of an institution. I don't want to go study composition for a for a doctorate or an advanced degree. I want to just turn myself into a composer, if I can, living a musical life. Um, I see I was emulating Cage. I really was, you know, because he ended up that way in New York, uh-huh. too, after stopping in Chicago from the West Coast. And... and um, and, you know, Chuck Wood was there in New York, a dear friend from Oberlin, and we were like, hey, we have to change the world through contemporary music. And so, um, you know, I read that, that book by Jacques Attali, Noise, okay. you know, which is like one of these deconstructionist postmodern literary theory things analyzing music. And there's a quote in there, nothing essential happens in the absence of noise. And I was like, voila essential music and um so that's that was sort of the birth of that and and we saw the ensemble as um an aesthetic um sort of you know platform for percussion-based music shall we say with the expansive idea of whatever percussion could be Okay, but percussion was at the heart of it. Percussion was at the heart of it because the two artistic directors were percussion percussionist composers, as we identified ourselves back then. Chuck was an amazing composer and instrument builder. He built these um, gigantic, like hamster cage looking like contraptions that were filled with all different materials, like shot and um, BBs and things like that. Like sometimes Messiaen uses in in the Canyons to the Stars, Mm -hmm. those giant things and. He, he made a, a 
absolutely beautiful piece for sandpaper block quartet using giant sandpaper blocks with incredible techniques evolved that are notated in the score of how to make how to make the the sounds and so it was it was great you know in you know rehearsing down in a soho loft and doing all kinds of crazy things and and then deciding that we had to um, also do lost works of the American experimental tradition, like all these pieces of music that had been played once but were never played in New York. Meanwhile, I was freelancing in New York as a percussionist to earn a living, so I knew a lot of classical musicians. I was lucky enough to play like in the Orchestra of St. Luke's regularly. It's a great orchestra. So I, I knew lots of, you know, very fine players and was then would bring them into essential music. And so I, I was thinking like, wow, we are bridging the uptown downtown divide because back then it was real you know right. it was very real and we were we were doing downtown music with uptown musical values <laughs> you know what i mean uh -huh. <laughs> and so um it was fun we had a lot of fun with essential music and that's when i finally got to meet john cage too blue you know it's like you know from the 16 year old who read silence then to like 10 years later be working with him was amazing yeah um did you get to hang out with him much yeah, well, you know, so my Cage story in terms of getting to know him was I had um, was working on the Johanna Bayer, Johanna Bayer um, material and preparing for discovering that her centenary in 1988 of her birth um, would be a perfect time to do concerts of her music. This was 1987, so it's like, wow, we have to do like play all her music in, in another year. And so I knew that Cage had played some of her music, um, and I hadn't met him yet. I had stalked him at some concerts, but was too shy to say hello. Um, finally, with, with on you know with with the rationale that I needed information from him, I wrote him a letter, you know, and I mailed it to his address, which I somehow got my hands on. And you know, two days later, the phone rings, and it's, "Hi, this is John Cage," you know, and just incredibly generous and one thing led to another and he he was um, very involved in essential music you know in coming to concerts if he couldn't come to a concert he would come to the dress rehearsal you know he was so generous and you know once we were doing a project and and I was like yeah well and he was like saying is there are you gonna do this again and I said I don't know how we can I, I, I mean it'd be wonderful to do it again but I don't see how we could afford it And he goes well what would you need to do it again and he made a, a generous donation to make it happen again. Wow. You know, that kind of thing. So generous, so open to other people. And then um, in the year before he died, I worked with him f somewhat closely, really closely in um, revising some of, not revising, but preparing for performance some of his so-called lost works, like The City Wears a Slouch Hat, Four Dances, I think, um, uh, Water Walk, the the mm -hmm. TV piece um, that he did for I've Got a Secret, you know, back on Italian television. All those pieces were finally going to be published, and we did them in 1991. We toured with him a couple times, and and so um, uh, great possibilities come from that. Yeah. Did he have any insight on the um, on the buyer for you? Well, or on her? On her, not so much. I don't think he knew her well. I think 
the comments he made to me um, about her in retrospect um, and from having read now Amy Beale's amazing biography of of Johanna Bayer, it's clear that, um, you know, the, the gender difference back then meant that people didn't necessarily take her that seriously. Right. And yeah, you know, and and some of the stories in that book about how Henry Cowell responded to Bayer are not so flattering upon Cowell. And, right. But you know, that's just a function of the age in which they were living. Um, but um, John, you know, he did. It's clear that he was close enough to her that she had sent him some of those pieces for which. You know, the, the library in Northwestern, where they were rediscovered, it's clear that Cage was the only person who possessed a copy of that music. So whether when she died, you know, he just left it sitting in a box or whatever, but now it's come to life again. Right. Yeah. Well, because of, largely because of you. Partly because of me, but someone, Ron Coulter, went to right. Northwestern and dug through the boxes, too. Got those new ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Have you seen those? Have you seen? Yeah, they're fantastic. Yeah, and now we know the mystery of four. Four, right? Right. Um, Just even though it's a to you not an interesting story, but for the sake of, as you say, um, saying things into microphones being important. Right. Could you could you could you talk about uh, how you discovered the buyers that you found? Sure. So well, because we worked together. Yeah. On a record. Yeah, absolutely. All of the percussion music that we knew of until. Yeah. So this sort of goes into my like my my postdoc or my doctorate work, which was not an official doctorate. But like I was, you know, in New York and I was somewhat inspired by what I was learning about John J. Becker, one of the lost members of the American Five. And thanks to Kyle Gann, who had lived in Chicago um, he had written about John J. Becker. And he, in fact, he, Kyle wrote this piece on Becker, I think, for the Percussive Arts Quarterly, which back in uh-huh. the day was a very scholarly journal. And, and then in the Civic Orchestra of Chicago, believe it or not, when I lived in Chicago those two years, we played a piece by Becker. Oh. So, so I get to New York, and I see that I find out, maybe through Kyle, that Becker's manuscripts are sitting in the New York Public Library Performing Arts Library that's at Lincoln Center. And I go up there and there's this whole Americana collection, huge, and wow, you can go in and say, I'd like to see these scores, and they let you look at them, these original manuscripts. So I was looking at Becker's manuscripts, um, and he he also had a Minnesota connection, so I thought this was cool, let me see what's going on here. And the composer after Becker in the collection was Bayer, alphabetically. And I'm like, oh, that rings a bell, too, because didn't Charles Amerkanian out here in San Francisco oh, yeah, right. do a Johanna Bayer piece? And then I had seen that on the on the, the Arch Records series that Tom Buckner put out back in the day. They had Music of the Spheres by Johanna Bayer as one of the first pieces of electronic music by a woman composer. Maybe the first one. Who knew? So I thought name rang a bell. So I, I check out, I asked them to bring me Bayer's boxes. And here's this amazing music in manuscript that has not been performed. Almost none of it. Like maybe five of the pieces had been played. And it was just like, oh my goodness. This is this is real. And then I started to realize, wait a minute, she was doing this in 1939, 1941. 
This is before Cage. This is before Harrison, you know, and look, look at these ideas in these pieces, you know, and the rhythmic work, the equivalence in and, you know, it was, it was powerful. This was clearly an original musical thinker. Yeah. So that's how I found the scores, sort of by accident, researching John J. Becker and then seeing that Johanna Byers' <laughs> stuff is in the same place. Um, we just did uh, March mm-hmm. and um, Opus 14, mm-hmm. Crush Music Opus 14. We just did those two um, in Boston in December. They're so great. Amazing. Just like just knockouts they are the sense of um proportion and the way instruments sort of have their you know a a percussion orchestra but the instruments all are allowed to have their own space and character yeah just you know as we were talking earlier being a timbre person Mm -hmm. when when you put that music up you get good sounds and you let it happen and you play Mm -hmm. it well it just comes alive and it's so and the music is so um she doesn't waste a lot of notes. No. So when it's not working, it's mm-hmm. really not working. And then right. when it comes alive, it just like reveals itself to you. And it's it's really wonderful. It's a good way to describe it. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, yeah. I'm going to spend this moment now to shout out. Um, so percussion, if you're listening, you need to program the buyers this summer at your festival. Oh, good. They're doing an early music. Um, they're doing an origins of percussion ensemble. So they're going to do all the cage, but this is me publicly. Okay. If anyone hears this and boys, when you listen. If they don't, they should be ashamed of themselves. That's right. They're really lame. <laughs> you boys are lame. So you yes. need to do that. And if you do it, I will say thank you very much and good yeah. job. <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> don't forget William Russell while you're at it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You guys did a Russell, a whole Russell record. Yeah. I mean, that was the other thing is that when, when I was done with Bayer, you know, Don Gillespie comes to me and he goes, you know, you should really check out Bill Russell down in New Orleans. He's still alive. No one's played his music. There are all these pieces. And so we, you know, we brought Bill to New York for his 80th birthday, and Cage just flipped out. Cage was so happy. And, oh, cool. and you know, I, I, I did something that maybe was a bit of a faux pas, but um, I saw from an old newspaper photograph of a performance of William Russell's music like a news story that some paper had done on it, that Xenia Cage, Cage's wife, before he got divorced and then became involved with Merce Cunningham, that she had played percussion in one of Russell's pieces. And I knew that she was still living in New York, so I invited her to this concert of William Russell's music, and it was the first time that she and Cage had seen each other, like in years. And it was very... Very sweet, actually, but you know that to bring all these guys, people together who were like eighty years old and right. who had had a moment in time in the nineteen forties, doing that stuff together. Well, that's probably fine. Yeah, Maybe you did a good thing. Yeah, if you did a mitzvah. Yeah, <laughs> a mitzvah. <laughs> um, the other one I've been playing off of our the record we did is the return the cow. Oh yeah. Oh man, that's a powerful piece. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't we I haven't done I I I still speaking of, you know, talking bad. Mm-hmm. Haven't haven't ever performed since we we made that record years ago now. Yeah, like 10 years ago almost maybe. 
Yeah, probably not quite. Not okay. quite ten. But, okay. But more than five. Okay. More than five of it less than ten years ago. Um, yeah, a lot of the stuff from New Music Quarterly and the Becker have not. Mm-hmm. I, I need to. But it's fun actually now teaching at Boston Conservatory. I need to. I need to get that stuff on stage. You know, mm-hmm. people need. It, the, the music still needs champions. The music still sounds fresh. You know, it's great stuff. Yeah. So I'm just kicking myself as I stare at you. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but but it's fun now having really amazing students and being able to, you know, a couple mm-hmm. times a year program these concerts. Mm-hmm. It can get really good people excited about it. And mm-hmm. and it was fun. It was fun actually, you know, speaking about um, how, you know, um, Johanna had a bad, she was not respected by her her peers as she her should composer back peers, in the day. Yeah. But um a number of my students got really excited about being able to be a championship champion of this woman's music and great. It was, you know, we were all being excited feminists about on buyer's behalf. Mm, excited musicians, you know. Yeah. It's good stuff. Well, exci- yes, excited yes. musicians are always the best. Yes. <laughs> we like those kind of musicians. Yeah. Um, so did your con- did your conducting come out of uh, necessity? Like when you when you went from dabbling to Right. So, you know, there's a couple parts to it. Um, for me, conducting emerged from being an artistic leader right, mm-hmm. of, of leading a group and then having another group in Santa Fe. With Essential Music, when we first started, um, we would, we, a couple of times we engaged so-called new music conductors to conduct us, and usually I left the experience thinking, why did we do that? Why didn't I conduct? I mean, I, I studied conducting for five years already or whatever, and like, right, right, right. you know, and, mm-hmm. um, and so one thing led to another, and so I started to conduct more with essential music. Um, and, and then realizing what I didn't know, um, I had this long relationship with the Spoleto Festival, of course, but back then I had the opportunity to be an assistant conductor. And, um, and so with that, that meant like assisting on an opera, which is the age-old way to learn to conduct, you know, is to be in the opera house and assist and and because every problem you encounter as a conductor technically will come up in opera and and because of all the stopping starting changes of tempo etc whatever you know it's and 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 then dealing with the voice and relationship to instrument following the breath all those sorts of things and so assisting in opera really was my conducting education, if you will. Um, and How it, the heck did that opportunity present itself to you? Well, because I was um, involved with Spoleto, you know, first as an orchestra member, and then um, I was invited to start a new music series there because um, they were aware that I had been doing this work in New York with essential music. Mm-hmm. And, they, and, and Minotti was still running the festival in Charleston. Um, and he had invited me, you know, to already do things like the Bartok Sonata on the chamber music series, uh-huh. right? But, the, you know, I had a reputation as a new music guy. I had my own group. So why don't you bring this series to the festival? And so I was at the festival and increasingly, and you know, so I would... I would be conducting, shall we say, members of the orchestra on the new music series. So I think, you know, I expressed to the conductor my interest in assisting on an opera. 
you know. That's great. That seems, you know, I'm, I, from, well, I guess I'm trying to think of how my dabbling and conducting started. Just probably, probably being a teacher. Sure. Probably like at Dartmouth, people mm-hmm. needed to wave hands. So you start waving your arms. Right. And then, um, and then I was, when I was in New Hampshire, there was that Monadnock music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I don't know, I don't know why, but somebody there decided that I could probably conduct. Mm-hmm. So they started calling me to conduct sometimes. Great. And then just started saying yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so actually I talk, I always talk to this, to Brad about it because I find myself as you did directing things and curating things and being, mm-hmm. I'm in charge of a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I think about taking any next steps, I'm almost paralyzed in fear at the idea of conducting opera. Uh, well, you know, for me, it's opened up the whole realm, a whole realm of repertoire, both orchestral and operatic, etc., that otherwise I wouldn't have the pleasure of interpreting. Because, you know, as a percussionist, you know, I, I didn't have the pleasure of interpreting Haydn, shall we say. You know what I right. mean? And, and, and I love conducting Haydn, for instance, and Mozart. And, and, um, and then even, you know, getting into, uh, you know, I, I truly love opera. And I'm a sucker for some of the, the you know, beautiful arias. And so for me, it's just also opened up the the chance to be a performer you know of of music that i respect and love too yeah and well i imagine that also that's must be a fun um like a not to make a reference to it being a ship or something mm-hmm. but to to be involved in moving that that production forward from oh where well you conducting are. opera is like yeah uh, you know shall we say steering a ship or whatever yeah yeah it's fabulous experience i mean and and um it's different very different than shall we say conducting a new music ensemble right. <laughs> you know um and um and you know, there are so many moving parts. There are so many people breathing together and spread out in a great distances from the back of the stage to down low in the pit. And yet to sort of hold all that together and like feel magic with it's incredible. Incredible. Yeah, I, I can imagine that part would be Yeah. Would be very powerful. Yeah. But the other thing I, I was gonna say about like, shall we say, turning into a conductor and well, the, you know Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you mean? Oh, by I was that? going to say maybe I maybe I made that maybe you oh. turning into sounds okay. So, such well, for me, thing. this goes back to the whole cage thing too, where um, you know he he wrote in 1991, and this was the year that I I most worked with him the year before his death. He wrote something he called an autobiographical statement. I think it was commissioned. I'm not certain, but I think it was commissioned for. Um, the Aspect Salzburg Festival that we went to with him. And he talks about, um, in this statement, uh, how he was asked to write a preface for an Italian textbook on percussion. And he shared his preface in his autobiographical statement, and he talks about percussion being completely open. It, it doesn't it's not even open-ended because percussion has no end and 
he's and he then says goes on and then he says something like percussion equals x it is chaos it is the new science you will no matter where you turn you will see percussion and it's just it's a notion it's a concept and and i realized then that for me um i was starting to think with with essential music and everything that percussion was an was really an instrument of of that's much more than just these physical tactile things we hit but that in in the whole cajun construct of everything being music and a philosophy or attitude about life that percussion is culture percussion is people you know and nice. yeah and and the way we we can shape and funnel ideas and music and repertoire and getting it out there and so so even for me conducting is an extension of that attitude about percussion like that this is my instrument now it's my percussion instrument as culture uh-huh mm-hmm. i think that for me when i as much as i say i'm terrified of conducting for mm-hmm. opera at the same time i think when i find myself comfortable when i do it or if i ever do more of it it seems just like in a natural extension of collaboration and of let's let's solve larger problems because uh-huh. as a percussionist you're always like this seems unwieldy whether it's whatever you know like this is a yeah. new challenge let's solve this challenge and let's do it and yeah. for me that tends to be do it collaboratively well that's a very good point because you know that's what musicians love too often is like especially when we're when we're in a scenario shall we say performing contemporary music together that's really difficult and it relies so much on collaboration and trust musicians love having a conductor who facilitates that and maybe that's why so many percussionists have have done well in that role you know like a a brad or right jeff malarski for instance to Mm -hmm. jeff means you know that you know former percussionists who who are good at that kind of collaboration yeah um because so because you did essential music you Mm -hmm. went to santa fe Mm -hmm. in your post new york starting a family yeah 15 years is a good run in New York, pounding the pavement, so to speak, and and living hard as a young person. And and then I was disillusioned with New York after a while. I felt like, hmm, how do I articulate this? First of all, on, on, a, on a macro level, New York is the capital of capitalism, and I didn't want to live in that. Mm-hmm. And... and um, I felt that everything was really transactional, even in our world of new music, and that careerism was really rampant uh-huh. in a way that I didn't... Well, it kind of has to be. Gotta... It kind of has to be, yeah. And and I was over it and, you know, got married. We had a baby and living in Brooklyn, and we sort of looking at each other like, this is going to be really hard if we stay here. And uh, wanting, and then thinking, you know, life is short. I, I don't care what happens. If I, you know, I mean, you've got a baby in your arms. You're thinking, nothing well, really matters. Yeah. Who cares? That's the way of changing everything. <laughs> let's just pack everything in the car and drive to New Mexico. That's sort of what we uh-huh. did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we ended up in New Mexico. And, and you know, I, I, I had said to Rosie, I'm done with giving blood to a new music organization, you know, and writing uh-huh. grants and doing all that stuff. 
and um, and it's time for me to focus on my own composition. And I don't need to be organizing concerts anymore. So well, I was about a concert. Yeah, <laughs> so I was about a year away from that, and I'm getting really itchy. And like, wow, everyone in Santa Fe wants me to do put on some concerts. You know, uh -huh. they they like they're so welcoming, and they want to hear what I do. And so, okay, why don't we put on a concert? Next thing you know, I've started another organization. So that's how Santa Fe New Music started. I get, it. I get it. Yeah, and there are times, you know, well. From from my my short time in retrospect, you know, getting so up and running in New York, mm -hmm. leaving that, however, the giving blood to your, mm -hmm. you're trying to grow your new music organization. Right. Um, I still sometimes get wistful about like my life now, working for other organizations and just the organization of Doug mostly. Right. It's a, it doesn't it's much easier. Totally. Right. Well, it's a good question. I mean, like in the case of essential music, at the time, I felt like we've accomplished everything we set out to do. Mm -hmm. We performed at every major venue in New York, from Lincoln Center to the 92nd Street Y to being a regular at the Kitchen and Roulette. You know, uh -huh. back that was what it was back then. And, you know, we did, we made, did the things. made 10 CDs, we did it, whatever, you know. And yet, in retrospect, when I... S see what's going on in New York now. It's like, why didn't I keep that 501c3 so, like, we could do projects, you know? But, yeah, but, but you're probably but okay. Probably Growth okay. And you know what? You also, you 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 sort of, you know, you pack up and, and leave a wonderful room for other people to move into and take your place. I also, I have to say, I don't, some of my friends who have been, having having made a choice few times i just turned 40 mm -hmm. so i'm in my early 40 evaluating the next 10 years right so i you know i feel like i've i can look at the 20s and what i did in the 30s and what i did and right but I've, I've i've i can see some chapters in my book like you can see some chapters in your book mm -hmm. and it's so what makes me happy when i look back on myself and probably for you is to allow for change and to allow for growth Mm -hmm. So when I see some of my friends grinding away on the same thing they were grinding away on when they were 21, right? sometimes I feel a little bad for them mm -hmm. because they never had the courage to try something else. Yeah. And, and maybe they won't ever try anything else. Yeah. No, I understand. Yeah. And I have many friends in New York still doing the same thing they were doing 20 years ago. And because when you, you know, when you think about all the things you've been able to do, mm -hmm. I consider myself very lucky. And I, I sort of look at my life in 12 year increments where okay. like zero to 12, I, you know, I became a kid, you know, doing who I am. 12 to 24, I became a, a percussionist good enough to, to earn a living at it, kind of, you know, the way a person can freelancing. 24 to 36, I became a composer and got my legs and people liked my music and asked me to write some more 36 to 48 I got my legs as a conductor and people would ask me to come conduct 48 to 60 I'm trying to synthesize it all together you know so how old are you now I'm not 60 yet I didn't think so no I got a ways to go I was gonna say dang no I got a ways great for no, 60 well I no no so. I'm not 60 no. I, I, but I'm in that stage now See, but you're in that 12 years I'm in that stage now where hopefully I've I'm pull, pulling it all together yeah, um, I have also f talking about as as you're. It's so exciting to hear people talk about reaching the age of sixty or sixty five mm -hmm. and talking about pulling it together. <laughs> when you know what I mean, that life can be 
that you've been so active and so curious that you're hitting 60, looking for 60 as kind of a goalpost of like, okay, maybe there'll be some synthesis and I can do the thing I need to do. Yeah. When most, there's so many people who just want to like give up by at 60 and stop doing anything. I suppose, but I'm going to have then the 60 to 72 chapter too, which I'm like, I want to be like Simon Rattle and be invited to conduct the Berlin Phil, you know? And like, well, I know I never will be, but I'm still going to try, you know? But that's like, but just so great to have the gas in the tank and yeah. and the interest and aspirations. Yeah. That's, that's like, what a gift that is. Well, I hope so, yeah. Yeah. But we have, I mean... We have other stuff to do, you know, culturally, you know, as and 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 in in just using music as our sort of outlet, you know, um, uh, that that never ends, you know, in terms of motivation, like in terms of how the world changes, how we relate this thing called music and new music to the, all the things changing in the world, and so for me. Um, that that will be always be there and and as sort of as the guiding you know force well nowadays you well you're still you're still in the active parenting stage yep and you're married to a woman who is trying to change the world rosie yeah um and then through your music you are you are your days are are you deal with a lot of young musicians these days through mm -hmm. Spoleto. Yeah. And are you conducting, you're still conducting in the, the Bay Area? Um, not so much. I have a relationship with Silicon Valley, uh, uh, Santa Clara University down in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. But when I think about, you have, and I think it's a good thing as somebody who also makes music with younger people. Mm -hmm. um, do you, well, it's just speaking of your duty to use the music to change change the world a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I can imagine that was one, that's one of the better parts of your job that you get to be the instigator and yeah, I think do, it's do you also do it that way, or you just try to make good music with whoever you make. No, it. I definitely try to um, what's the word um, transmit, be an agent for um, guiding people towards that attitude in themselves you know and it's so great with um, younger musicians um, increasingly to see that they have that fire so like to, to explain to anyone who's listening like Spoleto it's a summer festival and we have a summer festival orchestra and the the people in that orchestra now are postgraduate people who might be in the New World Symphony. A lot of people in New World come to Spoleto. These are people who are fantastic. They're the people who go out and win the jobs in the orchestras. And yet many of them are multidisciplinary in their musical backgrounds and approaches and very creative and very talented. And so, and and thankfully, in during my tenure at Spoleto, the last like seven years as the music director of the orchestra, it's become the most competitive program in the United States. I'm very proud of that. It's a really kick-ass orchestra. And all the guest conductors who come, like, you know, Stefan Asbury, and they're like, wow, this is like Lucerne level, you know. And the to work with these people um, is, is not just great because they play great, but because they want to use music as 
an instrument of change. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, and I, I really see my mission at Spoleto that way is partly mentor, partly conductor, you know, giving people the opportunity to do things they normally wouldn't do. Someone's, you know, learned an incredibly difficult piece, put them on the stage so they get a chance to perform it at a major festival. You know, that sort of stuff. Yeah, well, yeah. That, for me, has been interesting as I think about the, maybe for me, entering my 10-year phases. Um, what is exciting for me to continue to look forward to is to work is in the teaching teaching's not the right word but um, to be able to to unlock people's creativity and to inspire people to make steps to use music mm-hmm. well as um, you know I talk a lot about music as a teaching music um, as a as a chance to teach leadership mm-hmm. and as a chance to teach ownership yeah, and these kind of things. So, what's exciting, like when I do the the JLA stuff, mm-hmm. what's the primary? My favorite thing about doing, like the reason I keep think I keep doing Anuxowitz, for example, is that for a lot of people, when I bring these ensembles together, it will be somebody's first time doing something that big, and it will right. be at a scale that they will not have imagined prior to that. Mm-hmm. And to watch people's, to be the person who you know, deals with all the crap so that they can, you can see the light balls go off of like, Oh my goodness, I never thought this was possible. I could do something big. Mm-hmm. And, and then that be able to be there for the mentorship and the follow up of like, yeah, what do you, you know, do something in your community, do anything. It doesn't have to be this piece. It's, right. it's fun to lock, unlock that or with my students to unlock like doing the buyer and like what we did to, right. to take this music and to say, use it as a chance to say, you know, the history books have talked a lot about Cage, but it wasn't just that. It turns out yeah. there's this woman doing amazing things, and you guys can mm-hmm. be the ones who who make it happen. And you know, to involve, as you know, like how fun to involve people in those processes. Right, but you know, the other thing is like you're an independent artist who's who's you know made a path for yourself that's very independent. That's no one else is doing the Doug Perkins gig, and and I think that. It's really hard to be a musician and an artist and to establish that kind of lifestyle for yourself. It, it often involves a lot of rejection, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of um, you know, a lot, of, a lot more tries than successes, you know, and patience. And, and I think it's just really important for people who are starting out, like these musicians, for instance, who I work with at Spoleto, they're in that really difficult transition period of being done with school, but not really necessarily artistically successful yet, or like, you know, bringing in the cash for what they do in spite of their amazing talent. And, um, and it's just like, it's, to give them that fuel or like it's we all have to do that for each other and people did it for me when I was that age you know um well so as you as you reach towards 60 <laughs> not yet <laughs> um <clears throat> what are what are your hopes and dreams these days well my hopes and dreams right now in January 2017 are that we're still here so, you know 
I mean, what we have going on in the world now is so fucking scary. I'm sorry. And, um, and this is different. And we have to not get so bogged down in what we've taken for granted about how our society works and our, our freedoms work and our artistic freedoms work and the resources we've had to make art and have fun with it. They're not necessarily going to be supported if the cultural values that built the society are destroyed. And so I, you know, I'm feeling a lot of despair. I'm, I'm feeling that um, uh, it, this is bad. I don't think people are exaggerating when we talk about fascism. And, and I think that, like, when you think of, you know, values aren't automatic. Values, like art, are created, and they're sustained. And so I just think our work now is, is helping people preserve humanist values you know and we uh, you know i don't want to give lip service to saying that music does that it does it does do that but we have other work to do every minute of our lives just in the way we relate to people and and fight uh, you know authoritarianism yeah it's been i i think i'm still out to sea with with what's happening. Mm-hmm. I, I have, I have been unable to bring, or I'm, I'm completely unable to bring it back to the arts just yet. Mm-hmm. I, I think the best I can do with the arts is to like put one foot in front of the other. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to do good work every day. Right. And I'm trying to, you know, I was mixing a Larry Polanski record yesterday. <laughs> good. I tried to mix it as I'm trying to mix the shit out of that thing. Uh huh. You know, to at least put good things into the world. Right. But it's it's been interesting. Well, as a parent, I feel like I'm spending all of my time, like worrying about the future for for Jake. Of course. And, like talking talking to a nine year old about the future. Hmm. Um. I think the question is, yeah, how how do we use what we have? Mm-hmm. Well, one to be, one, even one thing about my students, why, why should we all keep making music? Mm-hmm. How, why should I make music? Why should I make other people make music? And how can we do it in a way that's meaningful? Well, you know, I feel like what we've always been doing or the way I've always approached it is that, um, that this is what we've been doing all along. I've always hoped that what I was doing was relevant. Otherwise, what's the damn point? You know, and so I don't feel like in my own personal um, attitude towards music making and, and the, the relevance of it, I don't think anything that is that changed. Um, but that, um, and, and that, you know, the role it fulfills for us just as the, producers, practitioners, and in terms of giving it to audiences, there's still a way to um, to focus it, you know? I mean, I, I've always felt this about curating and programming, is that you still, you need to focus things to sort of like be a needle for what is out there. Um, and so that, 
certain things get resonated that need to sort of be in the, the waves of the air for people to think about. And so, you know, that will be ongoing, I think, for all of us who participate that way. Um, and I just hope that, you know, in, in the realm of the environment, um, both both human and ecological, that we're not losing things. And I mean, this has been a concern of mine for years. I mean, I got that from Cage. You read his late writings from the 80s and 90s. He was so worried about the environment. He was depressed, you know, and he wrote things that today we can look back on and say, wow, he was really ahead of his time. Fact of the matter is, you know, all the things going on in the environment, a lot of people have been writing about for 50 years who, who saw it coming in the 70s. And... Um, and even in, in my own work, I mean, like in a piece I wrote, like in 1998, One Body, I, I really talked, was trying to talk about for people who could get it in, 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 in the text and the way the music was presented was, was about like the loss of humanistic values that in culture, that, that those values are endangered, you know, like endangered species, but human relation attitudinally is also endangered on a certain level and now that's come to a head you know uh, you know like gosh 19 years after i wrote that piece and the things i was concerned about then are sort of manifesting themselves and and um and so yeah i just i i can't retreat you know, but I really do feel like um, uh, I, I don't I don't know the answers, but we the, the, our, our personal relations are at a real juncture. Yeah. 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 What a bummer. We can't stop here. No, it, no, it's I, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't it's it's um. It's yeah. Well, to be to be more, um, I guess I th I think about that a lot. One even with my son, like mm -hmm. that the the as you say, um, human relations. So I think the the positive thing where we can end soon is that we are two humans talking about it. Absolutely, and thinking about it. And you know, you're gonna think I'm just beating a dead horse here, but you know, John Cage said, "Here we are. Let us say yes to our presence together in chaos." Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, and I think that's maybe that's all you, maybe that's the best you can do. Mhm. Mm and, and to imitate nature in its manner of operation. Yeah. There you go. That's nice. Mhm. Mm um Yeah. I think I I forget who I was listening to the other day. Um but they were saying sometimes you know, I like to say do good work. <laughs> and then somebody uh, also said that their their daily sort of thing is to be better. Mm. It's like be better. Mm -hmm. I think it might have been Andy Richter actually. Okay, that's his his <laughs> like his working mo is be better. Uh huh. That seems nice. It does seem nice. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So you know, I don't know. I'm trying to raise a good Boy Scout. Sure. I'm trying to play good music. Yeah. Well, you are. Yeah. And um. Yeah, hopefully, 
hopefully we all get through it together. I hope so. Yeah. And I think maybe that's what's different is I, I mean, I think it's just me. I, I am, I can get as worried as the next person. Sure. But I, I don't, I think I'm such an optimist. Mm-hmm. I like to hold on to optimism. I do too. I mean, I'm an optimist too. And I also know that like we can't navel gaze because it's a huge world. This is just one, one country. There's a lot of other stuff going on out there. I watched the cosmos the other night. Mm-hmm. Um, the new cosmos, not mm-hmm. the Carl Sagan cosmos. Uh, right before bed, my son and I watched the cosmos mm-hmm. lately. We had a Bob Ross phase. Uh-huh. <laughs> he's soothing right before bed. Uh, but we've been watching The Cosmos. And the, the thing actually we, we went to bed to last night was um, that one of the things Carl Sagan did with uh, the Voyager mm-hmm. um, satellite mm-hmm. is he made it take a picture of Earth right. after Neptune. Yeah. And so it, it just ta- it just showed this, this thing going back to the image from Earth and talking about... Slowly to remember, receding. To always remember... However, we get mad at our politicians and right. f- our bad feelings about the earth. We are but this tiny speck. Yeah, didn't he call it in that quote? I know the quote from him. It's like a moat of du- dust suspended in space or something. I think he called it a moat of dust. Us. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think my life in new music, I can only be optimistic. Because as I like to tell people, well, you, we have both made careers doing music that nobody cares about Mm -hmm. making people caring about things that no one cares about and then to bring value to it and to make it inspirational and to make it valuable Mm -hmm. to bring value to this thing that Mm -hmm. so well it's a purpose-driven life yeah i feel like every day i get up and do a little of that Mm -hmm. so it makes me feel like i know that me and my friends are going to still wake up tomorrow and keep keep kicking the can down the road Mm mm-hmm I think that makes me hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, also hope comes in seeing um, the the change in children, you know, the growth and seeing um, the sort of unending optimism of nature, of plants, of, you know, the way they will break through and bloom again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Okay. Well, with that, um, I might just end it there and just say that thank you for talking to me. I'm what always a ju- happy what to a see pleasure! You. Yeah, we'll have to carry on, and we will. Yeah, we will. Um, but yeah, I value our friendship. And Likewise, I man. To- I, it was so much fun back in 2004 to bring you to Santa Fe and and uh, do everything from concerts uh, with your latest repertoire with So to. Going out on the museum plaza and hitting rocks together. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And getting rained on. Getting rained on, yeah. Which I continue to enjoy. A good mm-hmm. rain. Mm-hmm. Rain in the desert. And I'm friends with Joe Gramley now. Joe and I are very close because sure. of you made us all practice in like an abandoned Kmart or something. We did, yeah. It was great. That uh-huh. was, I, have, I have many good memories of that trip. The concerts were great. The friendship was great. Sharing this huge vacant shopping center with Joe Gramley and practicing all day. Yeah. <laughs> it was and fun. Walking across the parking lot to the drive through coffee shop. Yeah. Um, By any means necessary. Yeah. <laughs> and it's great. And yep. it, like, and yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I've since taken my family back many times. Great. And it's become a touchstone for us. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. 
Okay, well, thank you. Thank you, Doug. 